Welcome to the Habit Mechanic Podcast. To help you finish this year strongly and get ready for a successful 2024, we're re-releasing every podcast we've recorded so far that takes a deep dive into the Habit Mechanic book. The episode's coming up in a few moments. Remember, if you want to get your business off to a great start in January, get in touch to discuss how our Habit Mechanic keynotes or workshops can equip your people with practical skills that help them build super habits in five minutes. Or if you want to earn £100,000 per year working part-time by launching your own coaching business, we guarantee to help you do that in just 13 hours. Get in touch with us today to learn more about becoming a certified habit mechanic coach who can transform people's lives and is recognized as a world leader in the field. For more details, contact us via the website. The link is in the podcast notes. Or if you want to feel better and do better every day, download the Habit Mechanic University app from your app store. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Habit Mechanics. Dr. John Finn here. Hope you've had a fantastic week so far. I'm really excited today because we're going to continue to go in-depth inside the Habit Mechanic and take the -the behind-the-scenes tour of the stories behind the stories, look at some of the, the details in the book in even more detail and just try to make it as easy as possible for you to become habit mechanics and build small new helpful habits that make your life easier. I'm joined again today by my colleague and friend, Andrew Whitelam. Andrew, how are you? Hi there, John. Yeah, um, I'm uh, very uh, much looking forward to to this this episode of the podcast. We're looking at chapter two of the book. And I think for me, what this does, and I think it's clear for, for everyone that when it comes to resilience, well-being, developing leadership skills, developing motivation, confidence, being your best every day, I think um, this helps us to recognise this chapter, chapter two, that there's a, a really important distinction to draw between knowing information about these things and actually doing to achieve these things. In other words, going through the processes and, and implementing these things and implementing changes in your daily life so you achieve these things and you develop these new mental and uh, mental attributes and psychological attributes so knowing versus doing is very much the essence of this chapter two and um, I think it's fascinating um, to be able to talk to you in depth about this and there's a there's a great story in the book which we'll come on to in a minute um, to start this chapter but um, the um, the opportunity to look at that in depth is great as well and I think it's worth mentioning John that um we, we previously asked for some questions on last week's podcast and later in this podcast we'll be announcing the the, the winner of our mini competition, the first person who submitted questions and um, we'll be uh, answering their question later in the podcast and um, asking people for more. And of course, uh, people can win a, a free a free year subscription to uh, Habit Mechanic University app. So um, very well worth taking part. Um so as I said then, John, um, in, in chapter two, to, to kick it off, there's a great story that you share with people about your own sporting exploits. And um, it's certainly an amazing lesson um, about how failure and a setback can spur you on to grow and develop and, and achieve great things. Would you, would you mind sharing more? Yeah, so you often get asked why, or I get off, well, you often, when I say you, I mean generally, Things we're passionate and interested in people ask us, how did you get into that? What was the starting point for you? And for me, my interest in performance psychology was supercharged by an experience I had whilst playing rugby. Um, Playing sport was pretty much the only thing I was good at as a kid growing up and you know, surprisingly enough, that's pretty much the only thing I practiced as well. And it was, I suppose, normal for me to be one of the first picks in the team and to just find playing sport quite easy because it's just something that I enjoyed doing and spent a lot of time doing. And when I got to university, I got the opportunity to um, go for some trials 
for the international uh, student team. I got selected into the training squad um, and that accumulated in playing a warm-up game before uh, an international test match uh, or student international uh, rugby game against Australia. This was a warm-up game. It was a selection game for that game. Um it was a wet... Probably, probably worth saying, John, at this point, if you don't know your rugby, um, it, it, whatever code of rugby it is, Australia are always, always formidable opponents and always very, very testing opposition. Yeah, so we know... Um, well, my, my friend played in the game that I didn't get to and he said it's the most... It's the hardest game rugby he's ever played in his life. Um so yeah, that's and he's he's not bad. Um, so it was a wet, cold, windy day in the north of England. I I think I was nineteen at the time. We were playing against the men's uh, professional team, and I was just out of my depth. Really, I hadn't seen, I hadn't been involved at this level before. Um, I remember distinctly in the, you know in the changing rooms beforehand, players throwing up making themselves physically sick because they wanted to get to what I now understand the right activation level. I'd never seen that before. Um, And I was playing fullback and that meant that part of my job is to catch high balls. And very early in the game, the, the ball went up. I was stood, um, pretty much underneath my goalposts, sort of so almost on the try line where the opposition need to get over to score points. The ball went up. It was swirling up around in the air. I was getting closed down quickly by two what seemed to be ginormous um men. I didn't really think of myself as a man at nineteen. But um which is maybe part of the problem. But um the the thought that was in my head was don't drop the ball, don't drop the ball, don't drop the ball. Now, this is a catch I'd made hundreds, if not thousands of times before. And I didn't even drop the ball. I just completely missed the ball, and they scored a try. Um, and I was substituted not long afterwards. You know, and connected to that story, actually, I think the year before, or maybe 18 months earlier, I ruptured a quad muscle in my right leg and I was a kicker and that meant I was really struggling to uh, train at the the level of intensity you needed to train to be physically fit enough to play at those levels and so and my leg just kept breaking down so I, I sort of knew at that time I'm not going to be able to play it at a high level because physically my body's not up to it so I thought Let's just try to keep playing at the the recreational sort of university level. You know, I do a good job for my for my university team and sort of knock the the higher ambitions on the head. So then I I kind of withdrew from even though I, I got selected, I think, for the sevens squad after that. Um I didn't go because I I just I got sick of getting injured really. But at the time, I was studying sports psychology as part of my degree. So I studied sports science, um, so physiology, sports psychology, motor control, which is the science of how you learn. Um, And fundamentally, getting better at anything is about learning. So I started that that journey very, very early in my understanding of how we actually learn. And we studied nutrition as well. But the psych really got me interested. It just grabbed a hold of me. I'd been maybe subconsciously, it, I, I kind of remembered this later, but it did always interest me, the psychology, because I was a goal kicker. Um, I played a lot of golf. I, I really understood the negative impact that thinking too much could have on sports performance. 
um, especially in those what we call sort of closed skills where you've got a lot of time to think, whether it's sitting a golf ball, catching a high ball, making a kick. And I do distinctly remember being with being in my my father's van, going to the golf club, and um, it was the British Open. And it was the year John Daly won it. I think it was at Carnoustie or St Andrews or somewhere. And it was maybe Friday and Daly was leading the competition. And it was the wash-up after play had finished. But the discussion was all about, is John Daly cheating? Because he was picturing the shot he wanted to make before he hit the ball. So in other words, he was using imagery to see the shot he wanted to hit. And he he must have explained this in his post-round interview. So the discussion was, is is that legal? Should that be cheating? Class this cheating. I just thought that was fascinating. I, maybe I was, you know, 14, 15 years old then. So, I, so I'd had this, I suppose, deeper interest in sports psychology, that rugby experience, um got me thinking about it more and, and the fact that I was studying sports psychology and back to your earlier point I knew and you probably don't you, you don't need to study sports psychology I don't imagine to know that you shouldn't be telling yourself don't drop the ball don't drop the ball but I I had a more sophisticated understanding of things like imagery and self-talk um, affirmations those real basic sports psych stuff than most people would have but yet you know when the pressure came on um, I wasn't using them so I was I was kind of kicking myself a little bit. But I thought that if I can't uh, compete at high high levels athletically because my body wouldn't let me anymore, even though I was only 19, I thought it might be quite interesting to help others from a, a psychological, performance psychology, sports psychology angle. So 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 this 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 adversity this well i think terror is probably the right word john but with the, this this rugby uh confrontation that uh you were involved in i think many people would would feel genuine terror um uh, with the physical confrontation of rugby unless they really um w- were used to it that this was a i suppose a bit of an epiphany then for you a bit of a a rebirth and in and your thinking and and led you on ultimately to, to where you are today with tougher minds then? Yeah, it was certainly important ingredient. Um, I, I do think those moments are probably overplayed but, because I know so much about learning, but it was definitely an important moment in my life and you can only learn by failing. You know, that's the key. And I fail every day and I will continue to do so but it's what you get out of the failure that's key. So you can dwell on it, you can beat yourself up, you can regret. But I I was on LinkedIn yesterday and someone, uh, someone had a post that said, my grandma said there's two days that you shouldn't worry about yesterday and tomorrow. You know, focus on today, in other words. And I just thought it was really interesting, the wisdom of, of grandparents. But we can certainly learn from yesterday and we can use those insights to help us to be our best tomorrow. Uh, so be our best today and be, and, and be our best tomorrow. But yeah, that, you know, I spent a lot of my teenage years playing sport. So luckily I was able to get some lessons out of those. And one of them was certainly really important in pushing me into, the, into what I do today. Um, helping people to become habit mechanics through through tougher minds, and and it certainly was the start of a a very long and and substantial journey for you. Obviously, um, academic study and then practical application in the world of business, education, and elite sport of of the things you develop with with tougher minds, and you arrive today with a the habit mechanic book an Amazon bestseller and the Habit Mechanic University app and, and the Tougher Minds Consultancy. Um, how did that, the, how has, did the um, journey pa- pan out, if you like, from from your 
realization uh, and, then, and then as you started to develop tougher minds as a as an organization uh, and offer what you do now to people how how did that journey take shape yeah so i did my dissertation in sports psychology and i actually looked at the role of imagery in golf and i was really interested in how the difference in imagery use imagery effectiveness in very good golfers in simple terms to kind of beginner golfers so i did a qualitative uh, dissertation on that literally interviewing golfers how they used imagery um and then i went off to work in america via something called camp america that people might be familiar with so the the year after i well the summer after i finished my undergraduate degree i went off to america not knowing what grades i'd got or or anything um which obviously you needed to understand your grade before you could position yourself to get to the next thing you were going to do whether that was more study or jobs etc and i got a really nice surprising email said i got a first class in my dissertation which meant i got a 2-1 in my degree and which meant i could do a masters um in sports psychology at a top you know institute so engaging and getting interested in the sport psychology piece you know led to that dissertation being pretty good because i was genuinely interested in it and then i went to study a masters in sports psychology at a different institute with some really really groundbreaking uh, researchers really interesting people doing research for organizations like NASA and uh, supporting athletes that were winning gold medals at the Olympics and, and breaking world records. And they were, they were really interested. Some of the sites were really interested in the emerging neuroscience. So the, the technologies allowing us to look inside the brain in real time, functional MRI scanners were becoming accessible affordable enough for research institutes to buy them at that time i think the french government had invested in a lot a lot of these machines so all the papers we were reading were from french researchers so i, I just got them more and more interested in it and also some of those uh, psych people that were working at the highest level um in an applied way as well not just research and then i got a job after my master's in professional sport, essentially, I worked for a technology company called Prozone. They were the first company in the UK to offer a solution that allowed sports teams to measure player activity on the field. So how far players had run, how many passes they made, how many tackles they made, etc., And, Essentially, they fitted cameras into stadiums and they would uh, use that information to, to create data packages, if you like, that coaches could use to inform their practice. Arsene Wenger was a big early adopter. Uh, Clive Woodward was for the England rugby union team. So I was working with the coaches to show them how to use the software and interpret the results. And obviously that that was about measuring and monitoring behavior ultimately. So it fit really well with my sports psych stuff. Um, the South African rugby team at the time was using it as well. And I remember I got the opportunity to analyze a guy called Percy Montgomery. who was the full, very famous South African fullback analyzing his routines, his pre-shot routines, if you like pre-kick routines and noticing the difference when he made successful kicks versus when he didn't. So really taking all this academic theory that I've been learning and put it into practice, that got me on some of the backroom staffs of, of um, some of these teams. It led to me wanting to learn even more, so I ended up doing a PhD um, to dig deeper into... I was interested in the transition between, you know, why... Um, 
the very best 18-year-olds, for example, in football, might not always be deemed, even deemed worthy of having a professional football contract when they're, when they're 22, 23, 24 years old. Why, why is that transition from being an excellent uh, young professional athlete to an excellent seasoned professional athlete so challenging? So I did my PhD work on that, looking at the role of emotional regulation. Um, I also worked at Carnegie, um, the sports faculty of what was then Leeds Met. So Carnegie is a very prestigious sports and ed education centre, um, which was one of the original P training uh, training colleges along with Loughborough. So I got to um, teach and create applied sports psychology modules, uh, teach on, I taught physiology as well. I taught motor control. Alongside that, I was working for the Professional Golfers Association um, where I created something called the pre-shot system to make it easier for coaches to train their golfers to think and perform under pressure. And then I got the opportunity to take the, all that stuff that I'd been working on and go to work for uh, a set of schools called the Monmouth Schools, which are a, a group of private schools in Wales, probably the top private school in Wales. People call it the Welsh Hogwarts. It's that kind of place. Um, and the remit was basically, we want you to infuse performance psychology, sports psychology into the day-to-day -day lives of our, of our young people. Um, I had two years to do it, a blank piece of paper, and it was a yeah, phenomenal experience and learnt lots, managed to uh, do some really good work there. We wrote, we wrote a paper about some of that work, actually, which was interesting. But that work got a lot of press attention because it was in the build-up to London 2012. And we'll probably dig into some of these stories, I would imagine, later in the podcast series as well, but other schools wanted that wanted this same approach. Um, a school called Colts in London, who we still work with now, actually. We've been working with them for, this is our 10th year of working with them. Um, they wanted to kind of plug our program into what they were doing as well. They saw the value of developing their young people to be resilient. Uh, and, you know, it was which was pioneering at the time. And essentially, so we had the sport, we had the education and, you know, also we, we were working at university level education as well, working on things like PhD residential programs. So all the way through that, that educational journey, but essentially we recognize the importance of training parents in what, what their children were learning. So we'd always have parent training programs as part of our school programs and the parents essentially said, this training is much better than anything we get at work, so can you come into our businesses and uh, do this for us as, as well? And that's what took us into the City of London at the request of, of the parents, show, uh, introducing us to their employee, their employers. And in all their, in there somewhere is where Tougher Minds emerged. I think Tougher Minds really emerged after my first consultancy, was called Performing Beyond Potential. Um, and Tougher Minds, I think, emerged after Monmouth. That very specific name and, you know, the rebrand, if you like. Um, so, yeah, that's a potted history of part of my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely fascinating, John. I think the thing that um, is so interesting about that is... Um, this exposure you had to critical thinking, to cutting edge thinking and, and, and research and science um, combined with practical application of um, these ideas uh, to test them with real people in the real world, which is, of course, so important. Mm -hmm. And I think if you read the, read the book and chapter two specifically, um, you say that um, it was clear the way the world is now means that process was so important because your realization was a new approach was needed to be successful, to be our best in the world we live in.
If you want to fulfill your potential or help other people fulfill their potential so you can feel great and get the rewards and respect you deserve, then I want to give you a free physical copy of my new best-selling book because you deserve to know the truth. The most important things for fulfilling your potential are not tips, tricks, hacks, therapy, coaching, meditation, breathwork, goal setting, journaling or finding your why. I know it sounds irrational because we're so used to hearing about using these things to help us fulfill our potential. But these approaches are outdated and ineffective and they are based on a big lie. To find out more and get your free physical copy of Dr. John Finn's best-selling book, The Habit Mechanic, go to tougherminds.co.uk. Yeah. The focus of most of my education, well, my fo- I'd say all my formal education in terms of learning how to help others be at their best, was very much on helping people to have more knowledge and more skills. And, you know, that that story that that I shared earlier, and it's also in the book about essentially choking under pressure. I knew what I should be doing, and I actually had the skills to be able to do it, but I, I, I didn't use the skills. I did something else. And... I thought there must be a better way to help people. You know, we haven't we haven't nailed this down yet. You know, psychology. I find it really interesting that when I started to work in professional sport, when I worked in a elite football, a rugby, cricket at the top top levels, I I worked for the England rugby league team. I worked with a guy called Johnny Bairstow, who's now one of the best uh, cricketers in the world. I've worked uh, with Premier League uh, managers, etc. The that time when I first started working in professional sport was the first big wave of sports science being adopted across the piece. It's probably driven by people like Arsene Wenger and Clive Woodward, the same early adopters of the of the Prozone technology, because they were just looking for any cutting edge they could get. But at that time, the backroom staff had very minimal sports science support. They might have had one fitness trainer, a part-time nutritionist. Maybe then they started to get a bit more specialist on the strength and conditioning piece. And then they might have had a uh, an analyst. Maybe a site was in the background somewhere. Fast forward to today, if you go to the top teams, they might have... I'm not exaggerating. They might have 10 to 20 analysts. They might have um, 5 to 10 strength and conditioning coaches. They might have, you know, a team of nutritionists. Most teams don't have a psychologist. So that that did not... Um, that did not spread like the other support systems spread. Why? Why wasn't it valued? It can't have been doing a fantastic job. That's the only thing I can think of, is that the people in the positions to psychologically support the athletes weren't equipped with the right knowledge and the right skills to really have the same impact that the nutritionists were seen to be having, that the fitness guys were seen to be having, that the analysts were seen to be having. Um. And and I do generally think that psychology as a science it's it's probably the hardest science to crack because it's a it's focused on something that we've we can't see. Um it's encased inside a skull. We've only had the technologies to look in to look at it in any kind of meaningful way. The, this is the brain I'm talking about in the last uh, 20, 25 years. So and John, just to interrupt, this is you mentioned it earlier uh, when you'd spoken, you were telling us about your masters. This is the functional MRI scan, magnetic resonance imaging, I think is the, is the what the abbreviation stands for. So you can actually see what's happening in the brain when people are thinking and taking actions. Is that right? 
You can, yeah, and it's not magic in the sense of you can see what someone's thinking in terms of what they're saying to themselves, but you can see activity, you can see brain function much more clearly and much more reliably than we'd been able to see before. Um, so my sense was there was a there was a better way to take this very intangible, invisible thinking process that influences and drives everything, all our behaviour, and make it easier for people to understand and access. And because, for example, you know, I got parachuted into a group of schools where I wanted to help everyone across the the school community you know including those from the nursery level upwards i had to make this really really simple really really accessible you know i, I would formally teach of 10 11 year olds this stuff um so yeah so i, I knew there had to be i knew that to be a, a better way to do it and and i could see that pain point increasing for people as well where you know, for my grandparents' generation, for example, they were working in the factory from being 14 years old. You know, teenage, being a teenager is something we've made up in the West. It's not a, not a real thing, being a teenager. It's a, it's a label we've put on something. They were, in, they were working when they were 14. And probably by their late teens, early 20s, they'd learned their core jobs and the core skills they needed to perform those jobs. And those skills didn't really change for the rest of their lives. They didn't take work home with them. There were no emails. They worked, you know, a set period of time. If you fast forward to today, the world is very, very different. I, I presented at a conference just before the pandemic for the British American uh, trade body at the Chicago Booth University campus in the city of London, and the conference was called The 100-Year Life. And it's essentially saying kids that are at primary school now, you know, they're probably going to live till an average of at least 100, and they're going to have four or five different careers. They're not just going to go to university, get a degree, be an accountant for the rest of their life, whatever that looks like. At some point, they're going to retrain, probably go back to university, and then they'll do it again and again. So we know that the only constant in the world we live in, the, what's described as the VUCA world, is change. And change means that it's harder than ever to be psychologically well. It means that it's harder than ever to be at our best. Um, and actually, when you start to understand what humans are designed to do, a lot of the things that are most instinctive for us make modern life even more difficult because instinctively we're wired for survival. So we're, we're wired to prioritise staying alive, being concerned about what important people in our lives think about us. And then once there are no issues with the first two things, we want to save and conserve energy. When you put a brain that's designed to do those things in a world like the world we live in, it's problematic. And that's why we have more people than ever before reporting that they're not doing very well and they don't feel very well. But again, when I looked at the solutions to help people to do better, I just wasn't convinced. And I wasn't just looking, I was trying these things out. So for me, psychometrics are more damaging than helpful. Psychometrics promote a deterministic mindset about yourself. You know, there's a, there's a fantastic HBO documentary that came out a couple of years ago now, just taking you on a historical tour of where Myers-Briggs, for example, comes from. You know, about it was created about 100 years ago. That, that's, that's for people who don't know, is it perhaps worth pointing out, John, that's a, a psychometric test that's quite well established and, and well respected still. Yeah, probably the most the most established. Um, and it wasn't created by scientists. It was created by a, a mother and a daughter. 
really well intentioned, no doubt about it. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not criticizing the intentions of it. But ultimately it was designed before we understood how brains really worked. And we know that it's we know we know about the negative impact that being deterministic about ourselves can have on our life. So that's Carol Dweck's work, mindset, where she's observed the damaging impact that fixed mindsets can have on happiness and performance compared to what she calls growth mindsets. But, we- but that, that's people thinking that's people thinking they can't change, they can't get better, they can't implement a new approach in their lives. That's what you mean by deterministic, John. Yes. That's it. So you've got a belief that you're either good at something or you're not good at something, and that's drilled into us. But science has shown that we're not fixed, and actually we get good at what we practice, and actually we automate and habitualize what we practice. And we now know, thanks to the work of people like the late Professor Anders Ericsson, that you know practice is just as if not more impactful than our genes, because genes are malleable. We know we now understand epigenetics. So, yeah, I wasn't com- very convinced by what I was seeing. Someone who'd pushed themselves, who'd wanted to uh, be at their best, who was actively using these ideas. I thought there must be a better way to do this. I I think I'd been. Um, for someone who was studying a sports psych- psychology masters, or I think you can, and you can swap out the word sport with performance masters in two thousand, the early two thousands, I think my cohort were uniquely exposed to insights from neuroscience because I don't think anyone else was looking at it quite that way. Certainly, none of none of the contemporaries I, I, I've met. Um, in my academic life was studying those things at that age. So I think I had a a different way of thinking about things, um, thinking about the drivers of what made us healthy and happy and at our best. And I wasn't that compelled by what I was seeing in the market. And I thought there was a better way to do it. Um, and that's why I created tougher minds and part of your your overhaul of your view of how how we should work towards being our best every day leadership developing resilience developing well-being all these critical things that we need was the role of habit and i think obviously people can see from your background how that's now become a um, a very amazing reality and a and a, a powerful force in what you do and what you deliver but but tell us how that realization was achieved john and 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 tell us more about how you then started to help people understand uh, and work with this idea uh, of our habits governing virtually everything we do yeah so i think the first step was making it really easy for people to understand themselves better, to start to understand how their brain worked and start to understand how they could improve their focus if they wanted to do that so they could be more productive or how they could improve um, their sleep or their diet or their exercise or how they manage stress or their confidence or improve themselves as a leader. So getting all those fundamental or tougher minds, habit mechanic, knowledge and skills in place, you know, and anyone who's got the habit mechanic book and, and the app, it's, it's just a toolkit. Um, I think in the book and the app, there are, a, there are over 30 tools that allow you to work on yourself to improve these areas that are fundamental for being our best, whether that's better sleep, diet, and exercise, better stress management, better confidence, better productivity, better performing under pressure, uh, tools to help you to learn more efficiently and effectively, and then all the leadership areas, role model, cultural architect, um, action communicator, swap coach. But it was one thing getting people to know those things and understand them 
the next barrier was how do you help people to implement those things and actually absorb them into their day-to-day and that's where I started getting really interested in in habits and I was very fortunate to work with um, another friend and colleague Professor Jim McKenna Jim's an applied behavioral scientist is interested in helping people to build to to change their exercise behavior essentially or what we would now say as to to build better exercise habits so i was learning from and alongside jim about you know the importance of getting people moving past what they know they what they're just knowing what to do but actually how can we help them to uh, change behavior also at that time you know books like thinking fast and slow were coming out which was a book by daniel kahneman um who won a nobel prize for his work in that area he was talking about thinking heuristics but really he's talking about thinking habits so just this how we're driven by our subconscious and automaticity so all these insights were emerging and I just, yeah, I just got deeper and deeper into the habit literature. You know, there are, there are a few red herrings in the, in the habit literature, literature as well because the pop psychology hasn't done a very good job on habits. It's very light. It doesn't really understand them um, because ultimately if you look at the scientific literature, not everything that is a habit is labelled as a habit. So, of course, the people that are researching those books just miss those things. They wouldn't think of Kahneman's work as habits when it is habits if we take the definition of a habit as a automatic or semi-automatic behaviour. So, so yeah, just through a, a range of experiences, you know, and all the time, again, we're out there in the field, we're training people, we're getting feedback from people, we're learning what works, what doesn't work. Um, and that's what compelled me. And I think when I first started to see the the headlines about just how habitual we are, and that would come from these numbers would come from uh, Professor George Lakoff's work. It would have been something like ninety five percent of what we, you know, think and do is subconscious. It's a habit. That's now up to 98%, and we think it's probably more than that. So it's quite modern understanding just how habitual we are. Certainly when I was started to study this area over 20 years ago, we, you know, the data wasn't around to really compel us that most of what we were doing was, was subconscious, was habitual. So I, I just went on a journey. Um and what's emerged is the thing that's blocking any of us being at our best is our habits. And those habits are malleable and we can learn how to get rid of the destructive ones and build ones that are more helpful for us uh, being at our best. And you call this this potential for change, John, this this once once you've helped people with a realisation about the all-pervading role of habits, you call that a secret superpower, which is, is part of your approach to set people on um, a new direction, on a new journey. Yeah, I think it's... Our, our superpower is learning. We are learning all the time. I've heard learning experts literally say some people just can't learn, to which I fall off my chair. You are learning all the time. Whatever you know, think of what you know now that you didn't know an hour ago, whether it was a news headline, an email that came in from someone. We're learning all the time. It's what we're designed to do. It's one of the big insights that neuroscience has shown is that our brain is changing all the time in accordance with what we pay attention to. Um, so it's our, it's our superpower and it's invisible to us. You know, we're taught and conditioned from a very young age that we're either good at something or we're not good at it because the nature versus nurture argument is so, Im- is so embedded in, in our society and how we think. 
Whereas the new way of thinking about ourselves is it's nature plus nurture. You know, we're a result not only of, of our genetic makeup, but of what we practice. And we're practicing every millisecond of the day. You know, if David Beckham didn't practice playing football, he wouldn't be a professional footballer. I can guarantee you that. So there's no there's no innate right to, to be good at anything. Um, we get good at what we practice and we can all learn to improve. You know, sometimes that's misunderstood. You say, well, I'll, I'll never be able to run as fast as Usain Bolt. That isn't what the science says. It says, however quickly you can run now, with the right training, you can learn how to run a little bit faster. However good you are at concentrating now, with the right training, you can learn to concentrate a little bit better. However good you are at managing stress now or not, with, a, with the right training, you can learn to be manage stress a little bit better. However good you are as a leader right now, with a little bit of training, you can learn how to become a better leader. So we can, wherever we are, we can move ourselves forward. But the the thing we're trying to do to help us to move ourselves forwards and stay there is to turn the learning into habit. So we don't just know that it's a good idea to eat five portions of fruit and veg a day. We get in the habit of doing it. We don't just know it's a good idea to um, walk 10,000 steps a day. We get in the habit of doing it. And you know it's a habit when it's the easiest thing to do. And that, John, is the essence, I suppose, of this this knowing versus doing, which you cite at the, the, the start of chapter two. That's the that's it boiled down and and made real for people. Um just quickly then tell us about this step-by-step process of building new helpful habits that you outline in all your training in the Habit Mechanic University app and in of course the book The Habit Mechanic. How does that work in reality for people? How do you implement it with groups and individuals? Yeah, so we're always moving people from knowledge to skill to habit. That that's the key sequencing. So if I want to improve my sleep, it was interesting actually just in the app, um, the Hampton Mechanic University app, either yesterday or, or at the weekend, someone posted that last week they got on average an extra, I think they said something like 51.2 minutes of sleep per night than they had the previous week by using our diet exercise swap tool. So this is a this is a tool you use to monitor your sleep, your diet, your exercise, and making it a behavioral science backed improvement plan. So that's a great example of that lady and it, so if and if you read chapter 19 in the habit mechanic, that information's in there. It starts by giving you more knowledge about your sleep, your diet, your exercise. Then it introduces a skill, which is the, the death swap tool. And then you can create a habit building plan, which is in chapter uh, 20, which shows you how to activate the nine action factors to make it as easy as possible to keep using the death swap tool every single day. And all, all the book is structured in that way, as is all of our training. So if we think about other approaches, you do a psychometric, you get a deterministic opinion, you know, invalid opinion about what you're good at or what you're not good at. And actually that opinion, as, a mac- as miraculous as it might seem, is what you've told the tool. So the tool isn't telling you anything that you haven't told it. So you've told the tool what, what you think about yourself and then it just spits it back at you in a, in a fancy way. But then all of a sudden you've got a deterministic understanding about yourself that I'm either good at this stuff or I'm not good at it. And then you might have a few areas to work on, but that's it. There's very little structure put around that that's going to help you to secure the things that you think is a good idea for you to practice. There's very little behavioral science structure put around that to help you to actually turn that into a habit. So we've got a 
help people to do the intelligent self-watching and part of that is getting more self-knowledge we've got to help them to target a particular a tool like the death swap in this case or it could be the five stage uh, team power model or it could be the cultural architect um, the self-assessment tool and then we've got to help people to create a behavioral science backed uh, habit building plan using our, which is based on our proprietary nine action factor model which we'll get into into later chapters but that's the structure and I think this is quite a good po uh, quite a good juncture actually to, to step back and think about the structure of the book because the the book is very deliberately structured in a way that gives um the reader the best chance of learning about themselves first and foremost before we introduce the toolkit and that's why so the the book is broken into four steps step 1 is discover your secret superpower which is what you just referred to Andrew step 2 is learn how your brain works step 3 once you understand yourself in much more detail step 3 is then when we introduce the skills it's called having mechanic skills and step four is chief habit mechanic skills, which is an optional section. But if you want to help others to be at their best, whether you're a title leader, someone who wants to be a senior leader in the future, whether you're, whether you're just a team member that wants to positively contribute, whether you're a parent, a coach, a teacher, the step four chief habit mechanic skills will, will be powerful for you. But we always start our programs. We know that you know one of the, one of the nine action factors in the first one we, we always introduce is the habit mechanic mindset, which is really about helping people to understand how their brain actually works, that it's malleable, it's changing all the time. We are learning all the time. Straight away, that's at huge odds with what psychometrics do. Psychometrics tell you that you're you're, you're fixed essentially, even if they don't they don't explicitly say that. That's what they're implicitly referring to. This is your type. You are this type of person. Um, and that isn't true. You, you get good at what you practice. This is what I've. This is what I learned. You know, it's the big problem with talent identification systems, is that they're trying to predict. And this is why talent identification systems are, are traditionally pretty poor is they're trying to predict what someone's going to be good at in five years' time, in 10 years' time, based on what they can do now. What you can do in five years isn't determined by what you can do today. What you can do in five years is determined by what you practice tomorrow, what you practice the day after that, what you practice the day after that, and so on. Because practice is so influential in what we get good at. And that's why I say very genuinely, the only way to be your best in the world we live in is to become a habit mechanic. You have to adopt that mindset that you are working on yourself and you're going to get good at what you practice. Um, for better and for worse, it works both ways, of course, which is oh, sometimes counterintuitive. We don't think about the idea that if I continue to practice beating myself up, that's what I'm getting really good at. They're the habits that I'm building. But in order to stop ourselves doing that, we first of all have to be aware of it. Um, so we so we don't, don't use psychometrics, use habit metrics. And the habit mechanic is full of habit metric tools that help you to learn about yourself in a really empowering way and give you the platform to start building new helpful habits not to be deterministic about yourself and give yourself an, an excuse for, for poor behavior. Because also, if we go back to the factory model idea, the reality is, is that whatever you're good at today, as competent as that might make you right now, that there, there are going to be new skills you're going to need to be at your best in six months and in 12 months, because the world is changing around us all the time. So we've got to keep working on ourselves. And if we want to be happy, working on ourselves I would argue is the best thing that we can do because by working on ourselves, we can we can help ourselves to make 
the personal progress that is so key to feeling good about ourselves. You know, just going back to the tea plan that we talked about in the last episode, just by rating ourselves every day on the scale out of 10, how well did I do my best to be at my best? You start to see you are scoring higher on average, you know, day after day after day. And it's like the lady reported in the app about getting nearly an extra hour sleep per night, which is seismic, by the way. Um, but I know I see that time and time again because these tools work. And there's so much noise out there in this space, so many things that promise so much but never deliver because they're not based on good science. They're not they're not de developed by people that have spent their entire life doing this. Those tools do that time and time again. They allow you to make personal progress. So if you want to work on yourself, you know, the toolkit is there. It's all in the Habit Mechanic book and the app. Well, John, that's uh, a great point, I think, to uh, to start to draw this podcast to a close. Absolutely fascinating insights and stories there. Thank you for sharing those. And I think um, people will be, um, if they haven't already read the Habit Mechanic book, I think they'll be very, very intrigued and motivated and prompted to do so uh, and all that revelation all that insight and more is in there so I, I certainly as someone who's read it would uh, encourage anybody to pick up a copy and um, really read a lot more about um, those amazing insights you shared with us today on this podcast um, now you mentioned the habit mechanic university app and of course, um, you, you very kindly created an opportunity for people to win a, a free subscription to the premium level of that when that goes live um, by asking people to submit their questions to us. And we'll answer them on this podcast. Uh, we've already done that um, and we've had uh, some fascinating questions in. And as I say, we'll just conclude, if we can, just by um, looking at one of those questions this has come in from pauline so pauline thanks very much for your question uh, by the way as i say please do keep submitting your questions via the website to us um but back to pauline's question uh we, we've talked about professional sport a lot um on on this podcast this specific episode so it's uh seems to me to be appropriate to uh to answer this question too um and um i think it's uh something that we'll we'll chime with a lot of people and people will will relate to uh, we often hear professional sports people talking about psychological concepts and ideas in their in their interviews when we watch sport on on tv uh, but pauline's question is specifically is it easier for professional sports people to use goal setting tools than regular people as she describes them because professional sports people already have a a defined direction or a, a target or or even a passion yeah, it's a great question. My experience would be, no, it's not. There are plenty here of professional sports people who don't want to do what they're doing, who are fed up, who would rather be doing something else, who turn up for work every day and go through the motions. They're not passionate. They're not interested. Um, they're human beings at the end of the day. And whether you're getting paid £100,000 a week or, you know, nothing life life can be challenging so yeah but i understand why it's easy to look at those people and think that they can easily be super motivated etc i think it's really interesting if you in chapter 32 of the book the cultural architect i really dig into self-determination theory um which i think is the the best motivation theory out there self-determination theory or to be self-determined means that You've chosen to do this thing, and we understand that as the most robust type of motivation. So if you're self-determined, you're going to keep persisting for longer. You're going to keep going because you've, cho you've chosen what you want to do. Um, theory, the theory emerged by, um, by the work of a, of a research called Harry Harlow, um, who got fascinated by his lab animals so he, he had primates in his labs that he was doing some i don't think it was you know bad research he was doing some fairly mild research observing their behavior but before one of the the night before one of a research experiment started i think he just wanted to calm them down uh so he put 
something like a Rubik's cube in each of the cages. And when he came back in the morning, he was fascinated by the fact that we're all playing with them. Um, and this kicked off this this whole area of self-determination theory research. And you can think of self-determination, it's on a continuum. One end is, I chose to do this. I want to do this. The other end is, I'm being coerced to do this. I'm doing it because I have to do it. And when you're on that end of the continuum, your motivation is much more fragile and you're much more likely to give in easy. And there's some research that I find really interesting where they um, actually started to pay children to play. So they you know, had children in a laboratory setting and they let them, there's a lot of toys and they let them play and they you know, timed and observed how long they played for what they did. Then they introduced another condition where they started to pay some of the children to play. And as soon as they started pay, to pay the children to, to play, their motivation dropped off. They didn't want to do it. And you would argue that that moved them from something that was a very self-determining activity to something that was far more coercive. And there's lots of steps in between. And I, I share in the cultural architect chapter how you can make um, what you ask other people to do more self-determining. You know, you will notice that the habit mechanic is set up in the book and our approach is very set up in a very self-determining way. Um, I never tell you to do anything. Nothing in our approach is prescriptive. It's about you doing what, what helps you. Um, you'll only know what helps you by trying things out. So everything is framed as, if it's helpful, try this. If it's helpful, do this. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, professional, very successful professional athletes do talk a lot about goal setting. Um, and that's probably why we think we can, it's easy to think that it's quite easy for, for professional athletes to do that. Um, but if you're struggling for motivation, go to chapter 16 and start creating the fam story. Uh, that. That's a tool that we've created via our work in professional sport, but also in education and in the workplace. Um, and we know that if your motivation is low, then using an intelligent goal-setting tool is going to help you to improve your motivation. Uh, I don't know of a better tool than the, the, the fam story. People tell me every day how it's helping them. Uh, and why it's so powerful. So that that's a great question, Pauline. Thank you for submitting that. Let me just, Andrew mentioned, go, if you go to our website, just if you go to the contact us page, um, you can submit a question there. Just note question for the podcast, and then you'll get entered into the draw. And then if you don't want to contact us via the website, just um, email us at contact at tougherminds.co.uk and email us your question there and we'll we'll read another question at yeah in the next episode okay john thanks so much for that um i think we've reached the conclusion of what's been a, another fascinating episode of the podcast uh thanks again for your insight thanks again uh for sharing your stories with us um I guess it's important for people to to take to them that, that you can like and, and subscribe to this podcast on so many platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on YouTube now as well. So by all means, like and subscribe to us there. And John, anything else you'd like to say just to uh, conclude this episode? Yeah, thanks for listening. And remember, it's not about knowing new things. It's about doing things differently. And the easiest thing to practice doing differently, you know, to start to to practice doing some diff something differently is, is try the T plan, which is chapter one of the book. We did a, an entire episode on it last week in the last last week's podcast. There's people in the Habit Mechanic University app posting their T's every day. Um, so if you're not sure what a T plan should look like or you want some more examples beyond what's in the book, just go into the app. Remember, if you post it in the app, you get the benefit the extra benefits of the community support, holding yourself accountable and just activate some more of the behavioral science and gets it on your side. So take positive action. The T plan only takes two minutes 
and you will start to see some positive results, I guarantee it. So, yeah, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you to everyone for listening. And remember, you're only one habit away. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you want to get your business off to a great start in January, get in touch to discuss how our Habit Mechanic keynotes or workshops can equip your people with practical skills that help them build super habits in five minutes. Or if you want to earn 100000 a year working part-time by launching your own coaching business, we guarantee to help you do that in just 13 hours. Get in touch with us today to learn more about becoming a certified habit mechanic coach who can transform people's lives and is recognised as a world leader in the field. For more details, contact us via the website. The link is in the podcast notes. Or if you want to feel better and do better every day, download the Habit Mechanic University app from your app store. Thanks again for listening.